0: We read as our scripture reading in Zechariah and Zechariah was prophesying, prophesying what we will see this morning in Nehemiah chapter 11. Essentially that they would then re-inhabit Israel, or, excuse me, Jerusalem uh, in a coming day. And we see that happening today. They have already been living there but um, certainly haven't inhabited it as we will see this morning. So we will see a fulfillment of a prophecy. In the spirit of uh, 2 Timothy three fifteen and 16, we know that all scripture is given to us for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and instruction and righteousness, and that verse in no way should lead us to think that there are not some scriptures that apply more to our current lives or our lives today. And scriptures that it may not be uh, more encouraging. There certainly are scriptures that are more encouraging, and there are scriptures that may be less applicable. But that doesn't mean that uh, we would not benefit from studying verses such as Nehemiah 11 and understanding how all of that scripture will help us be more like Christ. Uh, Before we get into the passage in depth this morning, I want to just, uh, by way of introduction, uh, give some thought on the topic of lists. Lists. List in Scripture. We're faced this morning with a passage that really, other than the first two verses, is a list of names that runs all the way into the middle of Nehemiah verse 12. And it would stand for us today as a reminder that one of the blessings, one of the many blessings, of teaching Scripture from the pulpit, verse by verse, is you're forced to come to these sections of Scripture. And examine them more in depth. My testimony would be something like this. I'm reading my daily Bible reading. And I get to something. A list. Maybe something in Leviticus. And your eyes kind of glass over. And your, your mind drifts off. And then a few minutes later you come out of the fog. And you've realized you've reached the end of the chapter. And you have no remembrance of what you have read. That's my testimony. You might have something like that. But when we're preaching from these type of passages. It forces us. To really get in and figure out what the Lord has for us through these type of passages. So, in passing, here are a couple of things that lists in scripture do for our souls. The first one being, lists help us remember that we serve a God who is detail-oriented. We serve a God who is detail-oriented. We live in a day where we mainly function in generalities. We're not really too concerned about the specifics of most things. But lists bring us back home to the truth that God is interested in the details of everything. Nothing passes by without his knowledge. If a sparrow falls from its nest, he knows that. If the uh, hair falls from your head, he knows that one. He knows all the specifics of all of life. We serve a God Who is detail-oriented and is interested in the minute things as well as the large things? Number two, lists remind us in Scripture of the importance of leaders and who God places upon the burden—the greater burden of responsibility. It would be a rare exception in Scripture to see a list that does um, that lists everybody, the vast majority is you just get the heads of households or those that are the leaders of whatever the list is reminding us about. And in a culture that is increasingly trying to draw us into gender neutrality, the scriptures, especially like today, uh, serve, especially for us as fathers, a reminder of where the emphasis of greater responsibility is placed. And it's placed upon the head of the home in most cases. Fathers, we are to lead well in our families, but not just in our families. We're to lead well in our businesses. We are to lead well in our churches, but we've been ha- put, um, we have been placed upon us the burden of greater responsibility. This would be an important point for our day when we want to feminize or much of the Church of America is moving toward a more feminized state, And we want to toss out the biblical doctrine of patriarchy, which has a bad label. But if you break it down, it just means father rule. And if you take out that doctrine from scripture, you are then seeking to dethrone the God of the universe, who is the father of all things, and take him off his throne and remove his rightful role, his rightful place of role and authority. We cannot do that and list, serve as a reminder that where is a, uh, authority and responsibility, a greater responsibility. We're all responsible before God. But a greater responsibility on the heads of households. And that is a picture of the God that we serve. Number three. List like this help to kill our pride. By way of analogy, in 2004 when I came back to Alert, from Alert, and came back to this church in San Antonio... In a different course of events, I ended up attending classes at St. Philip's Community College in San Antonio. Who knows about St. Philip's Community College? Raise your hand. So very few know about it. Well, I thought there was more notoriety about St. Philip's College in San Antonio area, and I'm wrong. Apparently there's really not much notoriety about it. It's a very small community college, and it's not in a, a very glamorous place. It's kind of down by downtown San Antonio, and there's a lot of crime down there. Well, not only is it a very uh, not a very glamorous place where it's located, it's not a very glamorous place at all. So there was a bit of a surprise when one day, uh, I don't remember when it was, some time toward the end of my classes, I got a letter in the mail saying I had been put on the Who's Who list of American junior colleges. And my academic pride swelled and I thought, "Wow, I've been placed on the Who's Who list." And then I got the list. And I couldn't find who for all the who's that were on that list. There were so many people listed, I was thinking, well, this isn't really that big of a deal, is it? I'm just one of thousands and thousands and thousands on this list. Now, what's my point? My point being that lists like this remind us on both sides of the pride coin that either we're more important than we think we are, or we're far less important than we actually think we are. Because the tendency is is either to think, well, I am far more important than everybody in here thinks that I am, or the tendency is, the flip side of the coin is to say, man, nobody likes me, nobody loves me, I'm just going to go into the back room and eat worms. You know, this whole thought of down in the mouth, I'm just the worst of all things. And then this list stands to show us, no, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, small stature, To great notoriety or not every person is made in the image of God and for that reason alone is very very important Nehemiah we would uh, tend to think would be a key player in all of that was happening in Jerusalem but really this stands to show us no God has his people everywhere, and he uses, most times, a large group of people. There might be one or two people he draws out to lead, but they can't do it by themselves. Flip with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look with me at the end of the chapter, verse 22. We'll look at this further in depth here in a few minutes, but just by way of um, noting, you note as, he, uh, as Paul describes the, the body of Christ, he talks about uh, the parts of the body that we, us people, tend to place more emphasis on, And yet God has made the greater parts of the body that which seem to be less significant. We in the Western culture put a lot of emphasis on what I look like and the shape of my body as to whether or not it's acceptable for everybody else. But we can't see what's going on inside, which is I've got a heart and a pair of lungs that is driving my body to allowing it, by the grace of God, to exist and being able to live. Well, it seems to be less significant, but that's exactly what... God has done for us as a picture physically as a picture of the spiritual church of Christ the body of Christ to show us hey a lot of times we want to be like the Nehemiah but it is oftentimes the smaller as we would see as we would think players that really drive the entire uh, endeavor that we are seeking to accomplish here so let's look at back in Nehemiah 11 let's look at our list this morning. Look with me at Nehemiah 11. Now, the leaders of the people, reading verse 1 here, lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine tenths remained in the other cities, and the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, I would assume that I would probably glass out if I'm going to read every one of these names and you would do the same, so we're not going to do it. We're not going to go through every one of those names. We will look at some of these men that are listed here. But needless to say, the rest of the chapter of 11 lists everybody who lives in Jerusalem and those that live outside. Well, what's the context of this passage? Go with me back, if you're still there in Nehemiah, to Nehemiah chapter 6. Let's bring us up to the current day of what has transpired. You would well remember, I'm sure, that the wall has been finished here in Nehemiah 6, verse 15. The wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul in 52 days. They had a completed wall, and it wasn't without some difficulty and adversity, but by the grace of God, they got it done, and they got it done in what we would consider a record time. And now the city of Jerusalem was protected by this wall but there was a problem and the problem is listed in Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah 7 verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious but the people in it were few and the houses were not built. We needed some people. We needed some people to occupy this space. We needed some people to maintain uh, the sacrifices in the temple to keep the place clean, um, to provide security. We needed people to inhabit Jerusalem. Most of them were living outside of it. But then we come, uh, at, there's a break there between that problem and where we are in Nehemiah 11 because we come to Nehemiah chapter 8. And in Nehemiah 8, as you will remember, there is a revival that breaks out due to the faithful preaching of the word of God by Ezra. Ezra reads the law and preaches, and we have all the way uh, from Nehemiah 8 up to Nehemiah 11, we have this revival that happens, and then the people respond accordingly in repentance. And as Paul uh, mentioned last week or preached on last week, we have in Nehemiah 10, they made a covenant of how they would change their ways, the fruit of their repentance, and come and serve the Lord rightfully. So that After the building of the wall, we don't have many people, then there's this revival that happens, but now we need to inhabit Jerusalem, which brings us up to chapter 11. Now, the text is not clear, as I read there. The text is not clear whether or not there are some people, as you see in verse 2, who volunteered, and additionally, there were some people in verse 1 who got sent there by way of the draft, so to speak. They basically put everybody in, or they, what they did is casting lots. They chose, through some sort of system, who would be in, one out of ten. And it, the text, again, is not clear. Is There were people drafted, and it seems to be that there were also people that volunteered. It could have been that they were all drafted, and they had such a good attitude about being drafted, that the people praised them, or blessed them, For the fact that they volunteered they had such a good attitude it's almost like they were just freely willing to submit themselves to living in Jerusalem that's the context but what is apply what applies for us today from Nehemiah 11 where we only see two verses that give us much indication of what's going on and the rest is lists and lists of names what's going to be what we can take from here and apply to our daily lives. I would like to offer two things. And the first one is found in the first two verses. And the second one is found in the remaining verses of Nehemiah 11. The first one. The first point uh, that we will spend the rest of our time, the first and second point we'll spend the rest of our time on this morning and uh, understand the implications they would have would be in verse 1 and 2, namely verse 1, And here's my point. The choice of living, the choice of holy living is marked by few. The choice of holy living is marked by few. Well, where in the world do I get that? I get that in verse 1. But the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. This is the first time out of up to Nehemiah 11... Jerusalem has been mentioned 21 times. This is the 22nd. And it's the first time in the book of Nehemiah, and from my study, the entire Bible up to Nehemiah, not chronologically, but just the way it's written, up through the entire Bible so far, that Jerusalem is identified as the holy city. And I think that is very, very significant. Mainly because it's coming after a revival and repentance. So there is a change in the hearts of the people And they're reviewing how they're looking at the city of Jerusalem, which we know is where God would dwell inside the temple. Therefore, it is holy. It is set apart from all other cities. The people realized here that the choice of living in Jerusalem was not popular. And we know that because nine-tenths went, no thanks. And they, the one-tenth, at least some of them, had to be drafted in. Most of the people were living outside of the city because the choice to live inside the city, Jerusalem, was really not a very popular choice at all. They realized that they were going to have to give up comfort and leisure and pleasure and cultural significance and cultural relevance to live in a holy city. Why would they have to do that? Because if you were in a tight crowded city, and you'll see this later on in a minute, you're not going to be able to develop what was culturally acceptable as significant. You couldn't have vast lands. You probably couldn't have a large home. You couldn't have lots of uh, livestock, which in an agricultural community was a great sign of wealth. You had to give up all of that, and you're essentially, at worst, taking a vow of poverty, and at best, you're taking a vow of insignificance. You're just another person living inside Jerusalem. But, for us in 2015, the Christian call is to march to Zion, you would know the hymn. We are marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. We are marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. We are on our way to the new Jerusalem. We are on our way to heaven. But the march onward and upward, as seen here in Nehemiah 11 for those who lived in Jerusalem, is in no way easy. And in fact, it's not clogged with traffic It's a very difficult one. Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. The way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard. The way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It would seem that in 2015 and even the 2000s, that by the look of some Christians, we're very surprised when difficulties come along in the Christian life. As it is, somebody told me or told us that following Christ was really something pretty easy. You just had to take him and put him in a few key spots and then you could have the rest for yourselves. You might even get fame and you might even get a little wealth out of the deal. And that's oftentimes what every one of us and me first and foremost probably fall into thinking. I can put God, Christ, where I want him in life and I can have the rest of myself and this is supposed to be really quite easy and we forget Matthew 7 that the reality is the way is going to be hard and it's not going to be a popular way. That the giving of oneself to the work and call of God can and often is, in fact, a lonely path to walk marked much more by difficulty, hardship and and self-sacrifice than ease, pleasure, and popularity. Well, we aren't willing, and, uh, as, the, as described in Luke 14, to renounce all that we have. And that's a direct quote from Luke 14, renouncing all that we have. And we would say, all for what? And the world would say, all for nothing. And yet for us Christians, we can say, it's all for everything. Philippians 3.8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul's saying everything's garbage, but that I might gain, that I might know Christ And few today can even say that and fewer still live that to prove what they're actually saying. But if the thought of following Christ is not the thought of being able to give up everything in order that we may know Christ, we are amiss in our understanding of Christianity. Because if we aren't willing to die for something, is it really that willing to be lived for? But what about hardship? Well, Jerusalem was going to have hardship, and we are as well. Romans 5, 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Look with me at Nehemiah 11 again and look with me at verse 23. We find mentioned in verse 23 some singers of the temple. Verse 22, the sons of Asaph, who were the singers of the service of the house of God, notice, for there was a commandment from the king concerning them and a firm regulation for the song leaders day by day. Question, what is the commandment? You find that in Ezra 6. Go over with me back a few pages to the book of Ezra Darius is reading Cyrus's decree and he says moreover verse 8 of Ezra 6 I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah and the rebuilding of this house of God the full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river And that without delay. And here's what I want you to note in verse nine. Whatever is needed. If you mark in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline that. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, lambs for a burnt offering to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil as the priests in Jerusalem request, it is to be given to them daily without fail that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Whatever is needed to worship God appropriately is what is being decreed. And that should be the cry of those who are pursuing holy living. Whatever I've got to do, whatever I've got to give up, whatever I've got to take on, whatever difficult task I need to face, whatever hardship I need to go through, I will gladly do so for the sake of knowing Christ in order that I might be able to be an acceptable sacrifice, according to Hebrews 12, that would be honoring and pleasing to the Lord. Excuse me, Romans 12. Whatever is needed to worship God appropriately, If we're going to be on the list of those who enter the new Jerusalem, it will only be by the grace of God enabling us to live holy lives that are characterized by a willingness to do whatever is needed to worship God appropriately with our lives. A single-minded devotion to Christ will be exemplified through the adherence to his word and commands and should be willing to be followed at all cost because without it, all else goes downhill from there. That's exactly what was being issued in Ezra, knowing if God's not worshipped appropriately, the whole thing goes downhill. So how are we doing in the pursuit of holiness? It's not very popular today. And if you find yourself maybe with some habits or some sin patterns that have taken root, or maybe you just realize that you've gotten a lackadaisical attitude to the work and things of God, then we've got to do exactly what the people in Nehemiah did. We repent and we turn and obey Christ to regain the blessing, of obedience to Christ in your life as we talked about in first life. We should follow the example set forth for us in Nehemiah. Look with me Vera, at Nehemiah 11 in passing before we move to our second point. Let me make one more note. Now the leaders, Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah 11, 1, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. Uh, Fathers, I would mention this uh, for us to notice that the example of holy living is going to be set, should be set by the leaders of the people. And fathers should model holy living and repentance. That should be something our children should not just hear from us. They need to see it by example. Words are really quite empty unless you're backing it up with your actions. So fathers, let's be reminded today, we've got to set the example, the example, we can say it pretty well a lot of times, but we've got to set the example of what it means to live holy lives. So the, the choice of holy living is marked by few, is point one, and then as we, as we would look into point two, I would mark it as the significance of, of the insignificant the significance of the insignificant your life is probably much the same as mine I don't know any astronauts that are in the room that get something pretty significant on a regular basis and blast off up into space my life is pretty much um, marked by normal as much as normal is normal uh, mundane everyday things And it's quite rare rare that anything special or extraordinary comes along in life. In fact, I spent a few minutes, multiple times, as I was preparing this, thinking, now what did I do last week? And maybe it's my memory, I don't know, but I couldn't think of much that I did last week, much less anything that was extraordinary. Most of our lives are marked, marked by the ordinary, just seemingly insignificant things, and that's pretty much what our lives are made up of. Look with me in Nehemiah 11, and I'm gonna, we're gonna take a quick survey here from verse three to the end, pretty much the end of the chapter. And we're gonna look at six descriptions of what was going on in the city. And we're gonna take them pretty quickly. But look with me at them. Verse two. The people blessed all the men who volunteered, this is the first description, to live in Jerusalem. Now, I, I don't know... Uh, how popular it is today or how much people enjoy it. But when I was growing up, one of the things that my brother and I greatly enjoyed doing every week was we enjoyed listening to Focus on the Family's Adventures in Odyssey. And that was a highlight of the week. And we listened to it a lot whenever we could. And we learned a lot of good things. But the favorite program, favorite program that they would also often put on was when some of the people inside the program went into Wits End and went into the Imagination Station. Now, if you've not heard of Focus on the Family Adventures in Odyssey, you're completely lost in my analogy, so just hang with me for just a minute. They would go into its end, into the event- imagination station, and they would be transported in their, in their imagination back into some important event in history. And through that, they would teach us that we're listening on the radio about some important event in history. And we had a lot of great time listening to those things. So if today we were to get... Into some sort of time capsule and go back into Nehemiah 11, and we're walking through the city of Jerusalem and we're meeting people and we're taking a survey. This, is my, this might be what it would sound like. Imagine you walk in and look with me at verse 4. You walk in the gate and you meet a man named Athaiah. You see him? Some of the sons of Judah. And some of the sons of Benjamin lived in Jerusalem from the sons of Judah, Athiah. So you come walking through the gate, you see Athiah there, maybe he gives you a smile. You walk up to him and say, hi, my name is Cody. I'm filling out this nice little survey here. I'd like to know what's going on in Jerusalem. Cody, I'm glad you asked. Here's what I do. I live here. Athiah, you understand here, this is an important survey. I need something a little more juicy. Give me something a little more exciting. Well, I just live here. He's boring. Let's go to the next guy. We move on to verse 10. We're progressing through the city and we meet this man, Jediah, verse 10. And we see the second type of thing going on. Jediah, the son of Joarub, and goes through in verse 12, there are kinsmen who perform the work of the temple. Hello, Jediah, what do you do here? Give me something juicy. At the ayah, he's a little boring over there. I need some more excitement. Well, I work here. Oh, now we've got something special. You're probably one of those guys who wears the nice uh, latest robes and fashions and you're greeting people as they're coming in and they're, you're nodding to them and maybe you do a little speaking. Actually, no, all I do is work here and I do whatever is needed, whether it's scrubbing the floor or opening the door, I, I just work here. So we go to 16. Shebatiah. What does he do? What do you do? Well, I work outside on the temple. We're meeting the lawn guy. He's mowing the lawn. He's, he's caring for the temple on the outside. This is, this is going from bad to worse. We're taking a survey to figure out what is, what is so significant about these people. And we started inside, and now we're going outside. And then you go to verse 17, and you meet another guy, Mattaniah, and we find the fourth description, he begins the thanksgiving with prayer. This isn't the guy who speaks, this is the man who opens in prayer. You mean you aren't the famous preacher? No, I'm not the famous preacher. I just open for the guy. I just pray. Well, what about the what about the fourth? What about the fifth one? Verse 19. Acub, Talmon, and their brethren who kept Watch at the gates. We're going even less glamorous. These guys sit by the gates and they stand and they look out and see what's going on. Some some sentries, some men who watch Standing Post all day long. Verse 22, we see the sixth description. The sons of Asaph, who were the singers, they were just part of the choir. They were just there and they just did their job. And for us today, it would be they just came to church And they sat in the pews and they sang the songs and they mowed the grass and they opened the doors and they fixed the coffee. They just did the little insignificant things, but they did them consistently. Do you see the point? See, our mindset would be as, as um, Western Christians, we'd be thinking, now this is, this list in Nehemiah 11 is not just the who's who of Israelites. This is the who's who of who's who. These got to be the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most popular, the most athletic, the richest, the most handsome, the most influential. This is the Forbes 100. This is the top 200 of of artists, vocal artists. This is the top 10 PGA golfers, primetime TV show actors, New York Times bestsellers, biggest bloggers. These are the people. No, they're simple, ordinary folks. Alistair Begg says it best about this passage. No one is here listed for their personalities or what they look like. They were listed for their faithfulness. Function was the issue, not their face. Why do you think scripture exalts so highly the call of motherhood? Because in the world's eyes, it's seemingly insignificant. Insignificant. It's the day-to-day task of changing diapers and fixing endless meals and hugging children and disciplining and reproving and encouraging and cheering on. And it's not just for a little bit. It's 24-7, 365 for all the rest of your life. And you spend more time without makeup and in tears than you probably do in makeup and on the red carpet. Can I get a little amen from the ladies? <laughs> But it's the faithful duty of motherhood that brings about the quote, the hand that rocks the cradle rocks the world. They're doing what the world does not seem as glamorous. And yet God calls us to what seems to be insignificant that in actuality is really quite significant. How about the fact that you cannot walk through a grocery store without being bomb or really probably any other story, without being bombarded by the lie that true beauty is how you look and will dictate how you feel, and yet in scripture we hear that the feet on the mountains that bring good news are beautiful. I don't know about you, but I've seen feet, my own feet and many others that have hiked mountains and they don't look beautiful. That's not in the vocabulary I would have. Blisters and pus and stink and nastiness, and yet scripture says it's beautiful. Why? Because the people that bring the gospel across the mountains, we who tread the streets to take the gospel to those who do not know are simply fulfilling what seems to be insignificant faithfully. We're faithfully taking the gospel to those who desperately need to hear it as someone at one time took the gospel to us. So we see why the description of beauty and significance in Scripture is marked less by what we see and a whole lot more by whether or not we are functionally faithful to the call of Christ rather than what we appear to be on the outside. We are a culture, and this would take us back to 1 Corinthians 12, that is infatuated with personalities and how we look. And that's not the way of Christianity. Go with me back to 1 Corinthians 12, and now I would like to read this to prove the point from Scripture of the significance of the insignificant. We want to exalt the personality and we want to make you something special if you look good. But look what the Bible says, starting in verse 22. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members which seem to be weaker are necessary... And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor that the member which lacked, so that there may, to the member that which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Now, I was called to preach today, but none of you would have showed up if Julie Jumas, uh, excuse me, Julie Burns had not cleaned this church. No one would want to come in here and walk across smashed donuts through the first light and sit on a pew that's got some spilled coffee in it. You might last a week, maybe for the diehards, the two, but you wouldn't come after that. Hey, it's great to stand up here and preach. But what about if Christopher wasn't sitting over there, making sure that my voice was loud enough for you to hear? You see, we like to exalt that which we can see, but really what we're looking for is faithfulness to the task, big or small, significant or not, to whatever God has called you to do. Are we being faithful to the service that God has called us to do? And I suspect that more souls have been impacted by Christ over the course of history. We certainly see this in Nehemiah 11, by those who have simply done their duty, as simple and seemingly ignis- insignificant as it is, than those who write, who we write books about, and often strive to be like, to the detriment of our daily faithfulness to the simple tasks at hand. You ever heard of an man by the name of Bob Kaplowitz? There's really no reason that you should have. Maybe I've mentioned him once before. Maybe you've heard of a na- man by the name of Robert Key. Anybody in here heard of a man by the name of Robert Key? Pretty insignificant. How about Miss Eagland? How about Robert Eagland? Well, Bob Kaplowitz is a is a man who, who runs what's called the Finishing House. Back at a church I went to, used to go to in Bloomington, Indiana. And what he does is he has young men that are attending college at IU University, come into his home, and for no rent, he, they help around the house by cooking, cleaning, etc., and they can stay there for free, and he encourages them and disciples them and teaches them how to cook and things like that. Why is it called the finishing house? Because Bob Kaplowitz has been a man struggling with severe cerebral palsy for his entire life, and has been in his wheelchair, can barely talk. But he has been instrumental in the lives of many because the boys that go there, the college kids that go there, they learn to serve unconditionally, and they all get married out, almost every one of them. They don't just leave, they go get married, and then they have to leave the house. And I know of at least two, probably three men who have become pastors today through his influence, and he can barely talk. He's seemingly insignificant, but he was faithful to the task that God had called him. What about Robert Key? He wasn't much, he was just a little preacher in a small country church and he happened to preach the gospel faithfully and one day there was a lady sitting in the pew and her name was Miss Eagland and she heard the gospel and she came to Christ. She wasn't much of anything, she was just a simple lady but she shared the the gospel with her brother, Robert Eagland. Well, Robert wasn't much of anything, he was just a simple hard working man and one day he found himself in the exact same spot you are, sitting in a pew except nobody showed up to preach. So what did he do? He stood up to preach. And you know who was in that crowd? Charles Hayden Spurgeon, and came to Christ through the gospel that was preached to this man. He's seemingly insignificant. History's forgotten him, but he was faithful to the task that God had called him to do. In closing, let's be faithful to the small daily tasks, small daily things in our lives, as were shown there in Nehemiah 11. Let's be faithful to read our Bibles, pray with our families. Hand out a tract, speak a kind word, help a friend or a neighbor, or even better, your enemy. It's the significance of the sen- seemingly insignificant that really makes the difference in the long run. And in truth, our significance isn't resting upon whether or not uh, you like me or I like you or I'm promoted or I'm seen on this or that or everybody likes me or not. It's resting only in the finished work of Christ and nothing else. That's all the significance we really have. And we, we sang about it in holy, holy, holy. Any crowns that we receive, I'm gonna cast right back at his feet. And you are as well. Because when we do that, any crowns that we would have been given would have been received because we would have faithfully obeyed his word through his grace in the pursuit of holiness for his glory. And then whatever we receive, we cast it right back because it was by his grace and power anyway that we were able to do that. So as we press forward toward the new Jerusalem, we should seek to do so faithfully, knowing it is only the grace of God that we could ever seek to do so and relying on the grace to give us the power to live holy lives, which will probably be marked by seemingly insignificant things that will be the most glorifying to God when we stand before him uh, for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we have um, we have the testimony here of of men, and I think we can add to that their families in Nehemiah eleven, who just functioned faithfully, faithfully functioned each day, doing their duty. Wasn't much. Some of them just lived there. But they chose to live there knowing it was a choice that was difficult. And us as Christians today, Lord, we have been saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. And you've called us to yourself to live a holy life, a life that is increasingly unpopular, a life that calls us to give up much, and Father, we we so often even fail to give up what we should. We desire to keep a little bit of this sin for pleasure when we want it. A habit over here that may be distracting just because we enjoy it. But you've called us to give it up all, to give up all things. Not for nothing, but for everything. For the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. So Father, we... We're not interested today and we're praying for your grace not to be interested today in making a who's who's list here in North America or in the world at large. We want to make the who's who of those who show up before Christ. And that list is not going to be marked by what we did or how we did it. But it's going to be marked by the grace afforded to us. And yet, Father, for for those of us that you allow to tarry here on this earth you've given us an opportunity to grow to be more like you to serve you more to give you more glory and we want to do that to the best of our ability and we need the grace Father to repent as necessary to live holy lives and to be content to do what you've called us whether small or great Father we thank you for the the time of studying your word and Lord, I thank you for letting me study this passage. It didn't look to be something that I would be too interested in preaching on. And yet, the more I studied, the more my soul was encouraged. And I pray, Father, you would help me and those in this room to respond accordingly. That we would pursue the call of Christ on a daily basis, faithfully, especially us fathers, Father. Help us to pursue the call of faithfulness daily, modeling for our children, those after us, right living, right speaking, right thinking, for the glory of God. We thank you, Lord, for our time that we could study your word, and we pray, Father, that as we now come to a time of corporate prayer, and as the men and the young men lead us, we would pray and encourage, uh, pray, Father, that you would encourage our hearts through that, speak to us, help us hear from you, in Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.